Hi, this is Eddie Deason. You're listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall. I was Mandark in Dexter's Laboratory. Ha 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 ha. You are listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall on Realm of the Mist Entertainment. Hey guys, what's up? Chris Stolle here, back for another Breaking the Fourth Wall. And guys, I've told you before when I started the Fourth Wall as an interview show that not only would I be introducing or authors and, and entertainers and, and musicians and movie uh, movie stars and you know all those types of people, that I wanted to make sure that I got a variety of different people to talk to and all walks of life, whether whether a-list celebrities down to the guy who picks up the trash on Thursday, you know, and I'm thrilled to be sitting down right now and talking to a man who had a different idea for his career. Uh, and we're going to dig into that. He was a school teacher. He's, he's retired, but he was a school teacher. And from the people I've talked to a very highly regarded school teacher. And now in his, off time, his retirement time, has taken up some unusual hobbies like journalism and photography to which he has been getting awards for. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mr. Scott Hopkins. Mr. Hopkins, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. So I, I obviously got to start at the beginning here. You were, you were a uh, elementary school teacher, if I remember correctly. Is that correct? Uh, you know, it's, I have to tell you, it's cutting out on me. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me let me try that again. You were a element yeah. el- elementary school teacher, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, primarily sixth grade, but I taught grades two through six in my career. Okay. What the, the big question? Obviously, I got to start with is what made you choose that uh, that career path? Um, I'm assuming straight out of college, you 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 went into this profession, or was it something that you thought about even as a kid going to school yourself? Well, I thought about it as uh, a high school student, but it was kind of a secondary choice. Uh, my first love was journalism, and I was the sports editor of the high school newspaper, and lucked out that we won a, um, a county championship that year in football, and got to write about those things, but. Uh, teaching was kind of on the back burner. Um, I started out at San Diego State as a journalism major, and I had straight A's through journalism and was blowing away all my all my other student uh, colleagues and things. But then we had something happen that made me decide to switch from journalism. Um, you know I, I got to ask. The- <laughs> you know I got to ask what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you wanted to ask me, I'm going to tell you. But, but actually... Um, I got into the advanced uh, news writing classes, and we had a professor who was a legend at San Diego State University. His name was Dr. James Julian, and they now have a scholarship named after him. He's passed away. But uh, he had a special textbook that he had written. It was, it was a spiral-bound textbook, and in it was a collection of field notes from news events. Uh, there were local uh, fires. There were car accidents. There were all kinds of news events and 
in it were the typewritten notes from a, a, a supposed reporter there. And he would walk in at 11 o'clock into our classroom in the social sciences building at San Diego State. And all he would do is write a page number on the board and walk out the door. <laughs> so what we were supposed to do was to go read the field notes on that page and digest what had happened and write the news story for it and have it on his desk by 1150 when he walked back in to collect the papers. And it was the old days of manual typewriters and uh, no, no smoking laws. And most of the kids in the class, students in the class would light up cigarettes and start furiously, you know, stressing out and puffing away as they tried to get their news stories done. I was a, an asthma survivor as my, in childhood and I was dying. I was just miserable trying to sit there and do my work in this room that was gradually becoming, you know, more and more full of cigarette smoke. So I thought to myself, if this is the, the way, the environment that I'm going to be in in my professional career, I can't deal with this. So I actually went and changed majors over that issue. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> what I didn't realize, I was my, my career goal was to be a sportscaster. And what I didn't realize at that time was cable TV was on the verge of breaking out. And if you remember back to those days, and this would be about 1969, 1970, there was one pro football game on on the weekend, one college football game on the weekend, one Major League Baseball on during the season every day, and nothing else. And when cable TV hit, there was a massive, massive growth in the sportscasting industry because every game started being broadcast. Every sport was broadcast. And I left just a little bit too early. And uh, had I stayed, I would like to think I could have gone on to become a sportscaster and maybe risen up through the ranks and become a network guy or done something pretty exciting. And uh, you'd be interviewing me for some other reason. But... Uh, that didn't happen. I went down to the department chair and told him I was switching, and he asked why. Um, you're doing really, really well. And um, I had been invited to be the news editor of the campus newspaper the next semester as well. And I told him I was changing majors, and he signed my paper, and off I went. Well, the, the, obviously, um, you're, you're, you're sitting here now talking to me, so... So it wasn't necessarily a bad change, but I do have to ask, especially now with hindsight being 2020, uh, looking back, yeah, you're in an environment with a lot of cigarette smoke and, and you know, vi violations for people, in, in a sense, violations for people who can't uh, uh, absorb that type of environment. But knowing that changes over time in the history and everything, is it something that you look back and say, you know, I wish I would have stuck it out or... Is it never been something that's ever been like, you know what, I wish I would have tried stick, you know, toughing that out because things would have been different? Well, I think my main thought was I would love to have found, found out what would have happened had I stuck it out. You know, would I have had a job in the industry? Would I have done well? That's uh, uh, probably a pretty competitive industry, I'm guessing, uh, just like on-air talent is in local news stations and things. And um, I, I would like to think I could have made a really nice career out of it, uh, which would involve probably a lot of travel, a lot of uh, meeting people in the, the professional sports industry, and uh, maybe, you know, I'd be on your show for a completely different reason, but I'll never know. 
And um, I would lie. I wish I was a crystal ball I could look into and find out what would have happened. But uh, as it was, I changed majors. I was still able to graduate in four years with a different major. And off I went in a different direction. Well, one, one thing I could definitely say with the broadcasting field, and I, I, I personal experience with, uh, with uh, broadcasting, is that uh, it's not too late now. It's never too late. And especially in something like broadcasting, even with sports, I mean, there's not really an age limit. Maybe it's not too late. No, there's not. I've got... Well, I think it is uh, based on the fact that, you know, looking for young young faces and things like that. I've got a friend uh, who graduated from the same high school. Uh, he was an on-air weather caster, uh, public address announcer at uh, major league stadiums. And he, at the age of about 73 or 4, is still trying to get play-by-play jobs uh, in, you know, minor league baseball, things like that. And it's tough. It's a young person's uh, field, and uh, they're aiming for the, I think, the the dynamic of uh, 20-somethings and people that they figure are, you know, what their advertisers want to, you know, spend money on, things like that. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, that's fair enough. I just, I just figured, uh, I just figured, you know, with like, uh, even, even with the, uh, the, the newspaper writing and all, uh, that... You know, age knows no number as long as the stories are, are solid, you know, and, and from what you were telling me before on air, and I, I don't I don't want to spoil and skip ahead of, of uh, the conversation here, but uh, sounds like you've got a knack for it. <laughs> well, the newspaper is a place where, uh, you know, age is a little different. I mean, I, you know, when that camera is rolling, they want that young, you know, 20 something or young, young image, but the newspaper thing, yes, is something that I can work with. But of course, newspapers, as a lot of people tend to say, are dying as well, uh, and less and less people subscribing to them. My community paper is uh, distributed at no cost all over the area in San Diego that it covers. Our company now has six community papers that cover many different areas of San Diego, and it's ours is doing well. The, the, uh, people in our area of coverage are really interested in our newspaper because it's the only source of news to them. Uh, the San Diego Union Tribune, the, the big uh, county paper, doesn't cover much local news anymore. And so our little paper does serve a niche of uh, people that really want to find out, and it is highly read. I, I, will, I will say that. Uh, what I, I'm, Again, that we're kind of skipping ahead because I definitely want to take a look at your school career. But uh, since we're on the topic of journalism and, and writing for the uh, different San Diego local local uh, papers, what are generally the uh, stories that you report on um, being a journalist? And also, will obviously tie into the photography aspect as well. Uh, what do you what do you primarily cover on, on average if somebody reads your article? Well, typically, it's all out of my Alma Mater High School, Point Loma High School in San Diego. It's an excellent high school. Uh, they put out a lot of well-known alumni from there. And I pretty much centered on sports and uh, school developments and uh, interesting students uh, that are doing uh, remarkable things in the school. So my, my focus is pretty limited, but it's a really good source of um, stories and of information for the community. Well, see that that ties in that ties into what I was told about you as far as a teacher, and and, and I like that a lot. It's one of the reasons I was you know 
so interested in in sitting down and, and having this conversation with you is that you did take a very personal approach uh, through your teaching career with your students. And it sounds to me like that's something that didn't leave you with your journalists either, is that you, you take the time to really kind of nurture and, and help uh, lift up those who excel in some way, shape, yeah. or form. Yes, I do. And I, I kind of have the belief that every one of us has a story, you know, that old kind of a cliche thing, but it's true. Everybody has a story. And if you sit down and talk to them, that story sometimes comes out. Uh, some of these high school kids have done some amazing things. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is Point Loma is at a, is a, uh, on the uh, bayfront and the oceanfront both. And one student years ago uh, developed a type of a keel for a sailboat that would increase the speed of the boat without increasing any of the drag in the water. And he went and uh, won the county science fair with his description of his invention. And he and his father went and had it patented. Oh, wow. So that made, that made a really interesting student story about a kid that's doing something that you just wouldn't normally hear from a high school student. So things like that come up. And I, the people at the school kind of clue me in if they find kids that are interesting or kids with a compelling story and point me in that direction. Um, does it does it give you hope, especially with the nowadays uh, in this time of journalism and all, and, and still taking a look at uh, look at the up and comers, the next generation, future leaders uh, of the world, especially when you look at the way the world is being uh, reported about right now with uh, so much negativity in the world, and and everybody always looking at like this current generation as kind of lost really for for lack of better term here does it give you hope when you find stories like that that's like you know what we're going to be okay that's actually a great question and it does give me hope um i think in our day and i'm 70 years old in our day we had kids that were this the bright ones that went on and did some amazing things and then there was a, a larger group of kids that were maybe not oriented towards college not oriented towards any kind of significant educational achievement but there are a lot of bright kids out there now uh, a lot of them are very caring they've been brought up um, in ways that they appreciate each other there's a lot of peer support out there um, I see I do see a lot of really really good things from this generation that's on its way up right now and obviously this is something that you had an eye for uh, now now we're gonna take the trip back a little bit here uh, from what I understand, from what I've been told, you have a unique approach to your teaching style. Uh, of course, we're going to give some examples. Uh, I, I've heard of baseball games, trips to the beach. Uh, I've even heard the story about an egg trial. Yeah, well, um, my first year out of San Diego State as a graduate student, I did my student teaching as a graduate student because then we started a little bit higher on the pay scale and we had a, a complete lifetime credential. If you did your student teaching as an undergraduate, you had to finish your fifth year of college within your first five years of teaching. And I thought that would be a little pressure when you already taught all day and then have to go out and take uh, classes. So I started my career as a graduate student and my first assignment I got at a time when nobody was getting jobs was to open a class in a uh, kind of a mixed community in San Diego 
there was one third black, one third white, and one third Hispanic. And when I was there, I observed that a lot of these kids in this particular area of San Diego had very little social and real life experience. Um, it's kind of like their world ended at the corner grocery store where they were sent to go get, you know, pick up bread and milk. Right. Um, a lot of the kids were big San Diego Charger fans, but they had never seen the stadium. Um, they had never been to the beach. They had never had these experiences that I thought all kids had. So I kind of dedicated myself to trying to provide some of those and started doing field trips and taking small groups of kids out to see things that they had never experienced. And that grew into my style of, of learning over the years, that and many other things that I tried to do to give them experience. So that's kind of where it began. Um, well, I mean, is it fair is it fair to say that uh, maybe some of those experiences is what kind of shaped your teaching career? Like, I'm imagining, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, obviously, but I'm imagining when you freshly came out of college, you were probably, like most teachers, like the buy the book, follow the curriculum, you know, at certain times you teach this, at certain times you teach that, and you teach it this way, and you teach it that way, and... And that's it. But as you got to know your students and your classes and, and, and just experiences with each personality, it, that's what started shaping your approach to teaching? Yes, uh, that's that's another good question. The The first year out of, out of college, of course, you get your first job like that. Uh, you're being, you know, you're under the microscope a lot more. And uh, we had a vice, this, this school I was at was called Encanto Elementary School. It had over a thousand kids uh, enrolled, and therefore they had a vice principal. That was how San Diego Unified School District ran their programs. So I had a vice principal that would come in and sit and watch the classroom at various times, and he had a policy. If I'm there more than five minutes, that means I want to see you after school. Okay, right. right. You know, kind of a, a of an intimidating policy or whatever. Right, and I would go sit down with him, and he would try and act like a like a, a counselor or a person, a mentor that was helping me out with things. And one of the things he talked about was student discipline. Now you, you hear that a lot when you're a young teacher in classroom management, things like that. And he would tell me, "Oh, if I ever got stressed out in the classroom, I would take my thumb and my my index finger." And I would push them together really hard and count to 10. Okay, that's interesting. Well, <laughs> it turned out that he had been a teacher at one of the schools that I grew up in, in Point Loma. And I was talking to one of my old teachers from back in the, in the day. And she said, oh, that's interesting. She said, I would hear all this noise and look out in the hallway and see him kicking trash cans down the hallway <laughs> when, when, he, when he got stressed out. And so here he was now as a vice principal telling me about all of his, you know, stress management techniques. So I got to laugh out of that. And, uh, at the end of that first year at Encanto, the San Diego Unified School District pink slipped every single first and second year teacher in the district. That was the way things were done back then. Wow. And that way they didn't owe you any kind of allegiance. They did. They, you were basically cut loose. And then gradually the next school year, they'd start hiring people back. 
but that didn't, you know, that wasn't my idea of a great place to work. So um, over the summer, I got called by the Chula Vista Elementary School District and offered to work in uh, summer school in what they called intercession plans or classes. So I went down over summer and ended up hired by Chula Vista the next year before San Diego called back to offer me another job. Let's see that that uh, that that's an interesting part because that's something I was go- about to ask is uh uh especially with summer school and I I don't mean this in any negative light to anybody but I know summer school from personal experience too is usually the more troubled students whether they just didn't pay attention in class to the ones that uh, got held back because of a poor attendance to to tr- you know troubled troubled students whether it be from the learning or from behavioral how is that for you um especially because like i'm imagining and i could be wrong in this okay and and maybe maybe i'm just envisioning envisioning you as a teacher the wrong way but i almost see more of a maverick style teacher um and again i'm basing off my own personal experiences and i know i know philadelphia is a, a far cry from san diego you know, but my my teachers were very, very strict, usually very standoffish. It was very rare to find a, a teacher who took personal interest, which it seems like you did. So how was well, that as an experience, especially the first time dealing with these uh, these more, for lack of a better term, at risk students? Well, Chula Vista was a very different place to begin with. Um, when I did my student teaching, we had two semesters of student teaching. The first semester, I was in La Jolla Elementary School, which is in a very, very high socioeconomic district, although they have a little cluster of minority and uh, lower income areas, but it was a very, generally a very high income, high education environment. And my master teacher there was really good, very stern, but with a sense of humor. And they would just stand around like at PE and just look at their watches, oh, how long can we go home? Yeah. Uh, they, were the, they were the type that went down to the lounge and everybody lit up their cigarettes and all that type of thing. So that was my first semester of student teaching. I got to Chula Vista, and I was in a program where they took over a classroom at the school, and we had about 30 student teachers all in this school at one time so that every single classroom had student teachers in it. And I went out the first day, and I saw the teachers jogging with the kids, and I saw all these things happening that looked like, wow, these people are really, you know, down with the kids and not just, you know, kind of detached or whatever. And so I kind of thought I'd found a home, and it turns out that was my home for the 35 years that I taught, you know, most of my career. And uh, so Chula Vista was a different era, different type of place. And uh, it was, you know, a better environment for what ended up being my style. You were allowed to do that and allowed to excel in your own way and not always, um, you know, looked over and people looking over your shoulder trying to point you in a different direction or in uh, a singular style and approach. Okay. Well, how did you feel about, like, uh, those certain teachers? Like, uh, to, to give an example of what I mean, um, I have two very influential teachers that always come to mind when I think of like broad spectrum of a complete different type of personality. Uh, one of which, as as uh, our mutual friend Steve has has told you, I had a music teacher who took personal interest in nurturing and developing what became my love of music. 
Uh, he would keep me after school just to teach me scales on a piano and, and, and how to solo in the choir, you know, uh, because he, he felt that I had that much potential and he took a personal interest in, in, in nurturing that. But on the opposite end of the coin, I had a math teacher named Mr. Katzen who unabashedly hated my guts. And he was literally like the villain teacher that you see in every movie. Like he, he'd come in with a, with a whistle and he'd blow it and he'd come to his desk and turn to page 84. I want silence and like total, total, uh, Gestapo type style teacher. Like, um, in, in your professional opinion, I mean, uh, have you seen those style teachers before? And like, why why is there always a story of one of those types of teachers? Uh, is it a is it effective, or is it just they've been in it too long and kind of gotten worn down? Like, what usually creates a teacher like that? Well, one thing I like to tell people about teaching. <laughs> It's what I call a universal profession. Everybody has had a great deal of experience with teachers. Uh, and it's kind of similar with doctors, for example. Everybody's been to different doctors and kind of seen different styles of doctoring, bedside manner, things like that. Um, the teaching thing, uh, yes, there are people that are in it for too long a time. Unfortunately, the system kind of um, perpetuates that, I'd say because they have you going till a certain time to retire and get, you know, a good pension. Um, in Chula Vista, our teachers association would sometimes try and take people like that aside, and the teachers association would try to kind of counsel them in another direction. Maybe it's time to, you know, put those retirement papers in. Maybe it's time to move on. And I respected our association for that because they – you know, they were trying to help those people and make less of those types of teachers. You never know, like everybody's got a backstory too, and you never know what had happened to those people if they had a miserable experience with the administration, a uh, bad experience with some parents, if they had been um, given low evaluations and were bitter. Uh, those, each one of those people had some type of a story, but it sounds like it was a negative story that brought them to that point. And I feel sorry for those people. They're obviously not having fun either, and neither are the kids that are in their classes. And it would be nice if all those people, you know, had a way out. When right. they decided they'd had enough, there was a, a way to go out with grace, go out with a smile on your face, and move on to something else. But the system doesn't have a, a pathway like that, you know, which is really unfortunate. Um there's other types of teachers that I would walk by in the hallways. We had our outdoor hallways, but walk by, and I would look in and see the teachers with absolutely no control over their classes at all. And I felt bad for them also um, because the amount of learning going on was very low. Um, we were asked to read books to the kids after they came in from lunch and recess to kind of calm them down and get them back to be ready to learn. Right, And I would, I would walk by classrooms where the teacher's up there reading a book and the kids are throwing stuff around and goofing around and nobody's listening. And I thought, oh, that's, that's just really unfortunate. I, my style was, hey, guys, first we're going to work hard, but then we're going to go out and play hard. 
but the work hard has to come first. That's that's what I'm here for. That's why I'm hired. That's what I'm expected to do. So we're all going to work on learning, and then we'll all go have a good time. So I tried, created a bunch of different things that I thought really worked towards that end. And I had very little problem with discipline in the classroom because the kids knew that I cared. The kids, I knew a lot about each kid out of class. I would ask about that and get to know them so that there was kind of a, not only a trust, but maybe kind of a respect there that they knew that, that hey, this guy, this guy likes me, this guy you know, understands me, I can go talk to him if I have issues and problems. And the discipline then kind of fell into place. There was no need to have to do that, slamming things down or, you know, raising your voice too often or getting angry at kids and calling them out in front of their peers, things like that. Well, I do know, I do know that, you know, teaching very much in, in a similar vein or aspect uh, is like parenting in a sense of uh, a large family in in. And what I mean by that is like, you don't, you're not supposed to have favorites with that said though, is there a couple students that really stand out in your mind when you think back in your career? Like the ones that were, I don't want to use the term favorites, but were special enough that they stand apart in your memory. Yes. Yeah. There's kids like that. Um, ones that really, what really went out of their way to, um, maybe bond with you, things like that. Um, I had a lot of times when, uh, you know, the day would get over, around 3 or 3.10, whatever time it was, and the kids would come walking across the playground from their middle school. And a lot of them would stop in to talk, stop in to chat. They, you know, wanted to, you know, talk to you about things, how things were going. And um, some of them, you know, were kids that had difficult home life. Some of them were kids that were really, really probably headed for some really, really great things academically. Just a range of kids that wanted to stop and, and you know, keep that uh, relationship going. So those kids probably do become kind of favorites or whatever. And I don't, uh, I don't want to try and suggest that I tried to show favorites in the classroom because I made a big deal about that. Right. That... Um, all the kids were equal, and that included me as, a, as an adult, you know. Right. I, I, would, I would say on the first day of school, I had a couple of little things I'd start with. And I, I do want to say that sometimes I had our class limit, class size limit was 31 kids. There's a lot of kids. And um, there were years when I had all 31 in my class by parent request, and there were years when I had less than that. And there were years when I had kids who were terrified to be in my class because of my, my reputation around the campus of being, you know, pretty tough, but also, you know, the fun part went with it. But uh, I would stress on the first day, I, hey, is there anybody in here that's better than anybody else? I'd say, well, you know, that includes me. I don't consider myself above you, and I don't consider any of you to be, a, you know, above each other. We're all in here equal. We're going to become basically one big family as time goes on, in which we're all equal. We're all valuable. We're all, we all deserve respect, and we all show respect. And so that's how it starts off the first day. Uh, when I talk to you, it'll always be please when, uh, and thank you. And I expect the same back from you. We, we speak to each other uh, with politeness, with courtesy, and everything we do. And uh, 
you know, after a while that caught on there, there was, you know, just very little need to have to, you know, get angry with anybody. There were, there were problems that came up, of course, but I tried to resolve those in a very, um, sensitive way as well so that nobody ever walked away feeling like they got put down. If that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And actually it's leading me a little bit more towards, uh, a two-parter question uh one of which again before we started recording uh you were telling me about the awards that you were getting in, in journalism and your photography which are awesome and we were talking about how there really isn't like a a a, a emmy if you will for for teachers in that in that type of aspect no no accolades of, of acknowledgement uh I wanted to kind of give a course correction next uh, with with this next question is how how many uh, opportunities uh, have you had where you've met a, st- a former student uh, like Steve Joyner for a perfect example where they've come up to you they've got their own careers successful careers or whatever else and they say well it's because of your mentorship you know it's because of you and and the way you taught and the way you listened and the way you handle difficult situations within the classroom like all all the above uh i gotta imagine that in its own right has got to be rewarding have you had a lot of experience with your students throughout your your 34 years oh absolutely um if i could single out one favorite one that people are kind of blown away by it's that my my optometrist now my current optometrist was one of my former sixth graders (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) And, and there's even a backstory to that. This kid uh, was born in Israel, Jewish, and he spoke Hebrew. The family moved to Mexico City. He learned Spanish. And on the first day of sixth grade in Chula Vista, uh, he spoke two languages, but not English. Oh, wow. So back in those, in those days, we didn't have any classroom aids or anybody to try and help us with things. We were just basically on our own with 31 kids. So I speak some Spanish, not a great amount, but some Spanish, and I put him next to a kid that uh, spoke Spanish quite fluently, and when we were doing things, they'd tell him what we were doing and explain it, and he was a very bright kid. Uh, He was learning really quickly. The way that I figured we'd, you know, kind of gotten over the hump, and he was really, really becoming fluent was, uh, in Chula Vista, we had grass fields for the kids to play on, which I was a great, great benefit. Most schools have just dirt playgrounds okay, and uh, gravel and things like that. So we told our kids, hey, as long as you guys keep control of things and there's no problems, you're welcome to go out and play football for your recess and lunch breaks. So they were all pretty good. The kids at school were pretty good. But once in a while, there would be an argument. So one day I walked back from lunch. And I can see there's an argument going on. The kids are all lined up outside the classroom. I can see there's a big argument going on. Well, there was an argument about the football game and whether somebody had stepped out of bounds or crossed the goal line, something like that. And this kid was arguing with them in English. And I said, yes, that's, he's really got it made now. He's, he was able to jump into the argument in, all in English. <laughs> and that was probably, that's probably about two-thirds of the way through the year. By the end of the year, his English level was probably about 7th or 8th grade. Oh, wow. So he picked it up really well and really fast. Yeah. Yes, and uh, he had a bar mitzvah that year. And 
it was an unusual um, part or faction of the Jewish faith, and he had it on a weekday. So I actually took a day off of work and went to his bar mitzvah and uh, attended that. It was an unusual, like I said, ceremony. All the men sat on one side of the little rented facility they were in, and all the women sat on the other side. But I went there and enjoyed his bar mitzvah and spent time with his family there. And uh, a couple years later, I got an invitation to a graduation ceremony from an optometry school up in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> he came down to San Diego, very smart kid, like I said, and he bought a practice in a part of San Diego that only had one optometrist. And that guy had been in business for almost 50 years oh, wow. and was retiring. So he bought this guy's practice. And for the first three or four years, he put that doctor's name on the door along with his. So all the old patients keep kept coming back. And he now has three other optometrists in his practice, total of four optometrists. He's really highly regarded. Uh, he told me when I went to have my eyes checked and got my glasses through him that his goal is to never have a patient walk out the door unhappy. He wants everybody to be totally um, satisfied and, and go tell their friends that he's a great optometrist. And that's his story. That's, that's one of the kids that, you know, I'm still in touch with. Uh, Facebook has been a real blessing. Facebook has allowed me to track down and to hook up with a lot of kids from all the different years. Um, and also, like, sometimes I'd be walking through a store, and I'd hear, did you used to be a teacher? And all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, the, the index file in my brain is, oh, who is this? Who is this? Sometimes I'd look at them, and I could pull a name up right away. Other times I said to say, you know, I'm sorry. I need to have you give me your name. And once they did, I, oh, I remember you now. Off goes the conversation. But it was always a, 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 a positive thing. Uh, oh, I had such a great time in your class. I remember what, this and that from the class. Um, a number of them have gone into teaching. Uh, one of them is a principal at a school in San Diego now. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of, of backstories that are great. Some of them are in nursing. Some of them are in law enforcement. Uh, I've been to a number of weddings. I've even been to at least one funeral so far of former students. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, but you know, it's it's the the circle of life, the story of life. Yep. No, that, that that's absolutely amazing, and I, I can't imagine the the sense of pride you have to you, you have to feel knowing like, you know, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a in a bad light for any any former student or whatever, but somebody that maybe, especially for somebody that maybe wasn't like the greatest student. You know, or, or, you know, whether he was, you know, a troublemaker or she or, or they were, you know, just really didn't get the curriculum that well. But, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years later and they're highly successful and, and highly, you know, regarded in their fields or whatever. And they turn around and say, well, you were the one that taught me that I shouldn't give up. Right. And I, I had good luck with kids that were considered problem kids. Um, a couple kids that I had way back when uh, in the early days were in a fifth grade class in which they drove the teacher up the wall and 
she'd be crying and things like that because she couldn't <laughs> deal with these kids. And I remember the principal telling me, Scott, uh, both these kids' parents want your class next year. But the fifth grade teacher says to make sure we separate them. What do you think? And I said, no, not a problem. Give me both of them. It shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> and it wasn't. Uh, both of them got along well. I mean, they didn't cause problems in my class that were of any nature, you know, bad nature. Uh, one of them went on to become, you know, kind of a, a blue-collar type of worker. And the other one went to the Air Force Academy. That's and cool. he's, he's still a good friend. Uh, he loves hockey, and I still am a hockey season ticket holder here in San Diego. So about three or four times a year, uh, I call him up, and we go to hockey together and watch the games. And uh, we're still really, really good friends. We differ politically, but not based on our, our background. Um, the other thing that I, I joke with the kids once in a while is in sixth grade, we, I taught sex education to them. That was you know a time when that was part of the curriculum, and it still is. And so when they talk about their families, I kind of kid them and say, well, don't, don't forget. Remember, I taught you how to, how to do that. So uh, <laughs> I helped you create that family. Tell your wife I said you're welcome. <laughs> but no, I mean, that, 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 that's absolutely awesome. I, I can't even imagine, like, the sense of pride that you've got to feel, like, to just take a look at these things and, and know that you – help shape it in some way, shape, or form, and which kind of leads me to the, the, the dark side, if you will, unfortunately. Sure. And that and that is uh, based on your experience, seeing, seeing how, how teaching is nowadays. And e even I'm not, I'm not a teacher by any means, but, I mean, uh, I think back to the way I was taught. And like I said, it was few and far in between, but there were teachers who took personal interests and then there was teachers who went by the book, and then there was teachers like the one I mentioned before. But more, they were few and far in between. But it seems like nowadays that teachers and, and the the level of education in this country ha, has really kind of fallen on hard times, for for lack of a better term. And I don't mean like you know outdated materials or anything else. I'm meaning the lack of personal attention. The the no child left behind push forward, uh, whether that child was ready or not, almost seems like we're, we're uh, for lack of a better term here, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong in this, you know, but I have children of my own in, in school, and this is kind of my, my viewpoint from it. It almost feels like assembly line, like just get them out as opposed to <laughs> teach them right. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question, Chris. They, the, in my later years of teaching – the the philosophies changed and and by the way one thing that I used to tell my colleagues the the way you could tell you'd been in the profession quite a, a good time was when the current fad of teaching had completely cycled and came back again as the new fad right and that's that's what happens it seems to be that people keep reinventing the wheel and in my case I decided what wheel I wanted and stuck with it but um, I was with a, um, a couple principals who were all taken with the latest fad. And I was disciplined at times for not using the newest fad, um, which to me was just, you know, unfortunate. Um, I figured that fad was going to last two or three years, and then there'd be a, some new curriculum directors or new, new gurus that came in with the 
this philosophy, which I'd already seen 15 years ago. And everybody was supposed to jump on that new bandwagon and move ahead. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, down on that kind of uh, new, all these new fads that come out. I will say, though, that some of the new things that I've seen, and I have not seen a lot, I'll be honest, I'm pretty upbeat about some of the things that I've seen happening nowadays. Um, they went through some periods where they wanted every teacher in the district to be in the same grade. Let's say if you're teaching fourth grade, they wanted to be able to walk in any school in the district. We had 45 schools by the time I retired and walk into a fourth grade classroom and they'd be on the exact same subject on the exact same page doing the exact same lesson the same way. And that's that kind of cookie cutter, uh, push them along type thing that I think you might have been referring to a little bit. Right, right. Um, and now I think that that's, you know, been discarded. The last couple of years that I've seen a little bit of what's going on in classrooms is that they seem to be doing some really, really good work. I don't, I can't speak for the math and some of that. Uh, people talk about the, the new, the newest, latest math and all that, and that's, it looks like it might be a little bit skewed, but uh, as far as language arts go, they're teaching real specific things like how to write uh, an expository paragraph, how to write a convincing paragraph, how to write, you know, various different types of writing based on your purpose and your, your goal. And so those things are probably coming along pretty well. The rest of the school education nowadays, I really can't speak to, but uh, I think some of the kids coming up now are actually getting some really, really good educations. And uh, the ones I see at the high school level, some of them are really, really brilliant. And they've, you know, they're, they're really, really well-rounded. And hopefully they're a product of what's going on at the lower grades. Wow. Well, listen, unfortunately, I am reaching that time here. Um, before we go, though, I want to make sure that people can check out uh, your articles and all that so why don't you go ahead and give us a rundown on where they could find your photography your 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 writings the uh the san diego papers and uh if there's any websites or anything that you're involved with right our our little newspaper company is called the san diego community news group and we have a very easy to find website it's just www.sdnews.com like san diego news.com sdnews.com uh when they get there they'll see six different newspapers uh, our, our web our website hasn't quite caught up with our company's acquisition of newspapers but uh, if they click on a newspaper called the peninsula beacon um, they can actually put in a search for my name on there and my article should start popping up uh not everyone's going to be an award winner but uh I could actually, you know, point them to some of those if people were actually interested. But um, <laughs> but I've I've got you know a collection of some pretty good things, and then some that are just pretty much everyday stories and nothing really necessarily remarkable. Well, still, I mean, stories are stories, and especially if any of my listeners are in the San Diego area. I mean, you know, what's it hurt? To know what's going on in your neighborhood? Yeah. You know? <laughs> right, and. Uh, there's a lot of neat things happening right now. Uh, like I'll see things happening and I'll publish it in the paper so that it becomes a community issue rather than a school issue. 
everybody's upset right now about the the seniors of this 2020 class not having any kind of ceremonies or recognition that other classes received over the years. So they've started a program in Point Loma uh, for their class of 2020, which is nationwide, I think, but it's called Adopt a Senior. And it's done through Facebook, where the parents of this of this graduating senior post a short biography, and people can adopt that senior, and uh, you know perhaps buy them some graduation gifts. Uh, there's a couple suggestions out there for those, and make that senior feel special, beyond what the ceremonies that aren't going to happen this year would have been. So I took that and I published a story. And the the paper comes out tomorrow. Oh wow! And the paper is going to have a story about how the community can get into adopting these kids and um, you know maybe that'll become a community-wide thing versus just you know the current parents adopting other people's kids um, the Point Loma High School principal announced he's taken a position in a different school district as a principal there'll be a story about his uh, leaving and about his new job will be in tomorrow's paper as well uh, there's a photo of him but just a photo I took uh, a couple of years ago with several other people in it, and I was able to crop it down to just show him and use it for that story. So uh, those are coming out tomorrow, and there will be others as the years go on. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, Scott, I appreciate it so much. Um, this this is this has been a treat. It's nice, it's nice to know somebody, you know, to talk to somebody. It's nice, I'll put it this way, it's nice to talk to a teacher that's not yelling at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll yell at you if you'd like, but uh, no, 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 no. I don't need therapy again. <laughs> Guys, thank you very much for joining. I hope you enjoyed this video. If you did in any capacity, hit that thumbs button, like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts of Realm of the Mist Entertainment, and go over to our sister channel. Sounds Dicey Gaming for all your tabletop roleplay needs. And if you prefer your podcast in audio-only format, we got you covered. Check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. Again, Mr. Hopkins, I appreciate it very, very much. I would love to have you back on. I know I'm kind of rushing you off here. Uh, I'll be honest with you, even on air, I'll be honest with you. It's because my wife just texted me and told me she's ready to get picked up from work. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd keep going. <laughs> well, we're in a world of honesty here, and I always tell the kids, uh, it's not Mr. Hopkins after you graduate, it's Scott. And some of them can call me Scott. Some of them still insist on Mr. Hopkins. They said, I just can't call you Scott. Yeah. But uh, I had a great time, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And I will catch you guys later on the next Breaking Fourth Wall. Have a good night.